0: so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, recently I've been reading a
1: lot from one of my favorite writers of the 20th century. Her name was Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch was an Irish novelist and philosopher, and she wrote in both genres, both in fiction and nonfiction, at a very high level of sophistication. Her novels are wonderful. They're they're funny, and they're strange, and they're very deep and thoughtful. And her philosophy is very rich and very penetrating. So I recommend first that you read Iris Murdoch. You might have heard of her in recent years. You know, she died of Alzheimer's disease after a very long struggle with it. And many people were caught by this irony of this very brilliant woman who was just gradually losing her intellectual powers. Her husband, John Bailey, wrote a lovely little book called Elegy for Iris which is a reflection on those years. Anyway, Iris Murdoch had a very dark view of human nature. She was something like a latter-day Augustine in the way she viewed human beings. She said, by nature, we're pretty self-absorbed. We tend to look at the world through the distorting lens of our own egotism, our own desires, our own selfishness. And, you know, I think she's pretty much right about that. The best moments in life, she said, are those rare moments when that egotism is broken through, when something so confronts us and so shakes us that we break out of our self-regard and actually see the world as it is. Those are splendid and rare moments. She gives three examples, and I find each one really fascinating of how this happens, when this happens. The first one is the experience of learning a foreign language. Now many of you listening to me have gone through this experience. Maybe it's in high school or college, studying a language, maybe more elaborately going over to a foreign country and really wrestling with the complexity of it. But here's the thing that she saw. When you're learning a foreign language, the foreign language doesn't care one whit about you. The foreign language is not there to make things easy for you. It's not trying to adjust to your needs and your desires and your expectations. That language just stands out there in its sheer objectivity. You know, it doesn't mind if you learn it, but it's not there to make it easy for you. You are forced when you're studying a foreign language into a great stance of humility. Now, I remember in my years of struggling with French, which is the language I came to know best. Eventually I I studied in France and really learned it well. But when I was first beginning in high school and college, there you're wrestling with these complex verb forms. Our English language grammatically is actually relatively easy, but you're wrestling now with the verb forms of French. They're hard enough. And you think you got a handle on those, and then you discover all the irregular verbs, all the verbs that that don't follow the regular rules, and you got to learn all those independently. And then you make your way to the end of that, and then you discover the subjunctive mood. you got to learn a whole different set of forms. And after a while you say, can't this be a little bit easier? (laughs) Can't this be a little less complicated? And the language, as it were, looks back at you and says, I don't care. I'm not here to make your life easy. If you want to learn French, then you've got to subject yourself to French. I remember now, when I went over to France to do my studies, I had a pretty good knowledge of the grammar, and I had been speaking it a little bit, and I was okay, but not brilliant by any means. I remember my first oh, couple of weeks in Paris. I found myself at a, a café, and it was very busy. Over the table came this French waiter. And if you've been to Paris, you know that sometimes the waiters aren't the nicest people in the world, you know? They're not the most patient people. So over the table came this waiter, and he said, Well, you know, yeah, can I have your order? At that moment, as this waiter was looming over me, I forgot everything. I forgot the verbs, the irregular verbs, the subjunctive, the past participle. I forgot all my grammar, and there I was kind of babbling away at the table. My point is, at that moment, for me, that waiter represented the sheer demanding objectivity of the French language. To learn it, as everyone knows, you've got to become a child, which means you've got to break out of your little world and your self-regard and humble yourself before this reality. For Iris Murdoch, this is a breakthrough moment when reality confronts you. Her second example is also fascinating. She said, this happens when a great work of art confronts you. Now, there's schlocky art. What I mean is art whose purpose is just to divert you or to entertain you. Now, nothing wrong with that. You know, at the end of a long day, I don't mind sitting, watching some silly sitcom that just entertains me, you know? But that's not great art. That's schlocky art. That's art that just kind of confirms you in your attitudes. What does great art do? I mean like the Sistine ceiling. Dante, Rembrandt's portraits, many of Picasso's paintings, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, great art. What it does is it grabs you, it gets your attention, and it shakes you into a whole new way of perceiving things. You're not so much entertained by the Sistine ceiling as you're overwhelmed by it. They say that when Michelangelo was working on the Sistine ceiling, great artists, and Rome was filled with great artists at that time, they would sneak in, because it was locked up, you know, but they would sneak in and they'd look up at the ceiling and they they were just astounded by it. They never realized, first of all, at the level of technique that anyone could do such things, but secondly and more importantly, the vision of reality that Michelangelo was displaying they had never imagined before. It seized them. It shook them. It changed them. That's my experience of listening, let's say, to Beethoven. Beethoven's great symphonies, like the Ninth, especially, changes you. You're a different person after that. You read a comic book, or you look at some schlocky TV show, you're not a different person. I mean, you're just, you're just entertained. Great art, though, grabs you by the lapels and it shakes you. You know, a couple of years ago, I was reading Rolling Stone magazine, which is a great popular music magazine, and they asked a number of uh, rock stars, let's say from the 50s and 60s and 70s, what was the first song that really shook your world? And I love that question. It's a good question. And it's right on what Iris Murdoch's talking about. There are a lot of songs you listen to that are, you know, fun and they're entertaining. But, but, there are some songs that shake your world that rearrange your consciousness, that make you imagine things totally differently. Great works of art shake your world and rock your world. They break through your complacent subjectivity. Third example, and now we're getting a little bit closer to the gospel. Her third example is when somebody demands your compassion. Here's what I mean. You're going through your day, doing your ordinary things, seeking your goods and so on. And suddenly you see somebody. Maybe it's a homeless person. Maybe it's someone who's hungry. Maybe it's someone who's lost. And suddenly their face so breaks into your consciousness, it so seizes you with this demand that you know that you have to drop your plans You have to drop your enterprise, and you have to respond to that person. Listen, not because it's good for you. Not because it advances your career. Not because it makes you look better. But you must respond to that person because that person's broken into your world with his demand. When the other calls forth from us real compassion, our world is rocked, changed, upended, overwhelmed. Learning a foreign language, being seized by a great work of art, being called to compassion, all three of those are kinds of spiritual exercises. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, because of our gospel for today. That well-known parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the publican. Listen. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee the other a tax collector. The Pharisee with head unbowed prayed in this fashion, I give you thanks, O God, that I am not like the rest of men, grasping, crooked, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. Now the Pharisee, and we know from the Gospels, the Pharisees were publicly righteous people. That was their purpose. They wanted to live the law in a publicly visible way so as to edify the people. Don't think of them automatically as bad guys. They weren't. They were righteous people. But listen to how he prays. With head unbowed. He's not overwhelmed by God. He's not allowing God to break into his world, but rather with utter confidence, he strides into the temple, and with his head unbowed, I always think of the way Michael Jordan stepped on the basketball court, the way Derek Jeter steps on a baseball field, you know, the way Eric Clapton walks onto the stage. People who are totally in command of their field, utterly cocky and confident. That's the way this man enters the temple. Sure of himself. Cocky. And then how he prays. I give you thanks, O God, that I'm not like the rest of men. I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithe on all I possess. What's his prayer? It's not a prayer at all. It's an exercise in self-congratulation. Not a prayer at all. Real prayer, real prayer, is like learning a foreign language. Real prayer is like confronting a great work of art. Real prayer is like the call to compassion. What I mean is, It's a confrontation with the God who breaks into your world, upsets your plans, turns things upside down, makes a demand on you. This man is way too protected. His self is encased in a carapace of self-regard. Then listen now to how the publican prays. The other man, however, kept his distance not even daring to raise his eyes to heaven. All he did was beat his breast and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that's prayer. That's real prayer. He has, and you can see it in his body, in his not even raising his head, in his beating his breast, you can see in his bodily moves that this man is overwhelmed by God. This man has given the glory to God, has allowed God to shape him and turn him upside down. And he knows, Lord, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. Real prayer is always a self-overwhelming act. I'll close with this. The church has taken in this man's words in one of its great prayer forms, that simple Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That prayer, that simple prayer, prayed over and over again, is the cornerstone of much of the monastic life in the Eastern Church. Pray it. I'd urge you, pray it. It allows God to break into your life. It allows you to escape from your self-regard and to have this massive experience of the reality of God. When that happens,
0: Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708-449-6100. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.